1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that yourselves are God's temple? You yourselves are God's temple. And that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would have the message of this morning, the message from your word, burn deeply into our souls. Father, there are ruins of churches all over the U.S. and around the world because the word that we have just read was not heeded. Father, it's so sad when local assemblies that represent you in an area implode. And Father, in most cases, at least in this country, when that happens, it's because of internal strife. Father, we pray that you would keep us one. Father, there's so much joy among believers, so much love when there's not a party spirit. Father, it would just be our prayer this morning that we would learn from what we see here and that we would remember it. Father, I think probably we all know what will be said but we need to be reminded of it continually. Father, work by your Spirit in our midst, and for those who are present who don't yet know Jesus, we pray that you would draw them savingly to him. Father, it would be our desire that when we are assembled at your throne, that everyone who's present here today would be present there. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's easy, it's natural to forget how great a truly great thing is. Let me say it again. It is easy, it is natural to forget how great a truly great thing is. Regular exposure to great things can make them seem, seem ordinary. The Philadelphia Museum of Art is a truly great museum. The building is situated like few other art museums in the world. It's at the end of a grand boulevard. It's spread out over 10 acres of a hill in the heart of Philadelphia. The view from the top of the steps looking towards City Hall is just a spectacular view. That magnificent building incorporates the best of architecture of the ancient Greek and Roman world. The collection there includes over 300,000 articles produced by the world's greatest artist over a period of 2,000 years. There are paintings of the great masters, there are prints, there are photos, there are textiles and porcelains and furniture and armor. One museum rating authority that I looked at recently, last week, rates this museum in our midst, virtually in our midst, as the 27th largest and greatest museum in the world. And the rating service mentions how unusual this really is because this is a city museum, and most of the museums on the list are the national museums, the museums of nations that have poured their treasure into their national identity and their national museum. Just to give you perspective, number 26th on the list is the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Now, I think almost everybody here has at least seen a picture 
of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And most of us have seen it on location at 22nd in the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Many of us have been through it at least once. Some of us have been there many times. We're aware of the museum, but regular exposure to it, driving by it on the expressway, if you sometimes use that, makes that which is spectacular seem somewhat ordinary to us. Now, as you thought with me about how phenomenal this building and this collection in our midst is, and we only had a few moments to do that, didn't you begin to appreciate what is there, to have a renewed appreciation of this invaluable treasure that's in our midst? That museum is so unique, it's so special, that there is literally no way to replace it. If it were to implode, if it were to burn, you could never replace what is there. I think that's obvious. When we, stop and what we cons- when we stop and consider what we have here in our midst, we begin to remember that this really is an iconic treasure. Now, we can easily view the church as ordinary when we are not considering how unique and how valuable it really is. And the Christians at Corinth had done that. They lost sight of the uniqueness, the value, the importance of their community of believers in their city. And the result of that was division and strife in the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul applies the only cure for division and strife in the church in Corinth or really in local assemblies anywhere. And that is to have Christians to step back and to consider what a local church really is. To have Christians in a local church see the role that the church plays in the geographic area where God has placed it, where he has placed them. I'd like you to see this morning the nature and significance of the local church. There were temples everywhere in the Greco-Roman world. Some of you have been to the cities of the Mediterranean, and you know you could look up in the high places when you were in those cities and see the ruins of ancient temples built there on the hills. In Corinth, which is a very compact city, there were at least nine temples in Paul's day or the ruins of the same. So Paul is picking an image that's well known by the people of the city to remind the believers in that city of God's design for his church. The apostle writes in 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, an image that they knew. Now, Paul's typical way of reminding people of things that they are supposed to know is something like this, for even you yourselves know, or just you know. You can read 1 Thessalonians, and he does that over and over again. He only uses this 316 expression in one book outside of 1 Corinthians. He uses it once in Romans. But in this book, he uses the same expression 10 times. He uses the expression when he's very passionate about something, when he's deeply troubled about something, when he's very uh, exasperated by something. Now, of course, the question is a rhetorical one. The Corinthians know they are God's temple. The answer to the question is yes. Paul is saying to them, in effect, by the question, 
I can't believe what you are doing given what you know to be true about God's church. Now, what were these Corinthians doing that so exasperated the Apostle Paul? Well, the church had several very severe problems, but his question here is precipitated by the fact that the unity of the congregation is disrupted. There were relational walls that existed between people in the congregation and between groups of people, groups of individuals in the congregation, and the people of the congregation, the people of God, were allowing these to continue to exist. In 3.3, Paul makes reference to the jealousy and the quarreling that characterized this church, and in 3.4, he gives examples of the factions or the parties that existed. You know how it goes. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Paul in his writings uses different metaphors for the church universal, the body of all believers, and he uses different metaphors for local congregations which constitute, which make up the universal church. So in this chapter, in verses 5 through 9a, he views the church as a field. He says, in God's field, there are people who have various duties assigned to them. Some sow the gospel seed. Some encourage people who have heard the gospel. They water the seed. Some get the opportunity to harvest the fruit. But he says that God is the one who makes the seed to grow to fruition. In 3a, Paul mentions that all the workers in God's field have a common purpose. The theme is unity. It's working as one for the spread of the gospel and for the building of the church at Corinth. In 3, 9b through 15, Paul switches the metaphor. In 3, 9b, the apostle writes, you are God's building. But do you see again that the concept is one of unity? That's what Paul is pressing upon the church. Paul reminds the readers there that there's one foundation for the building, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. There are various members of the body who build on that foundation, put up the walls and the roof, but a building has to have unity. The foundation, well laid, will support the walls. The walls are tied together by the roof. There's mortar and nails and pegs that hold the whole thing together. But all the parts must be well joined together if the building is to do that for which it is designed. One writer has said in using the building metaphor, the Apostle Paul is using a metaphor that draws us even closer than to the family term that he uses sometimes for the church. The writer reminds us that in a family, the children grow up, and in most cases, they become independent, they leave home. But in a building, you can't take the components of the building apart. If you do that, what do you have left? You have nothing but a pile of building materials. You have the components, but not the building. Paul, in 3.16, goes on to describe the type of building that is the church of Corinth. It's not just a generic building, but the building is a temple. Now, the Christians in Corinth knew all about temples, as I mentioned. They had frequented temples in their city before they were saved, before they came to faith in Jesus. And they knew that in 
every one of those temples or nearly every one of those temples where they had gone, there was an image of the god or the goddess, a statue of the god or the goddess, the one for whom the temple had been dedicated or to whom it had been dedicated. They had gone to these temples in the hope of meeting Almighty God. They had gone to worship the god or the goddess that was represented in the temple. They went to sacrifice in hopes of making atonement for their sins, in hopes of being forgiven from the weight of sin that they carried. They went to the temple to be blessed by the God that was represented by that temple. Paul uses the temple imagery um, that the Corinthian Christians knew to describe the remarkable nature of the community of the believers to which these people belong. They have all been called out of spiritual darkness by Almighty God. They have all had their sins forgiven by him through Christ's sacrifice. The only way you can have your sins forgiven, they have been united to Christ and to each other by the Holy Spirit of God. And together, this local community of believers forms not just a common generic building, but God's temple in Corinth. What makes this to be true, 316, is that God's Spirit lives in them. A temple, of course, is a temple because God dwells there. Now, we know that God resides in the soul of each individual believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul teaches that in order to persuade the Corinthians to keep themselves from sexual immorality. He writes, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, Paul's argument there is that since each Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, that when that Christian engages in an illicit sexual relationship, they take God into the liaison with them. Now, of course, the same is true of any sin that we commit. If we view pornography, we've taken the Holy Spirit with us to watch uh, the unholy. Any sin we commit, if we're gossiping, the Holy Spirit is present with us. Jesus told his apostles in John 14, 17, that he would give to everyone who would believe in him the counselor, the spirit of truth, who would live, Jesus' words, with us and in us. Because the Holy Spirit of God is given to each of us at the moment, we believe, each of us individually is the temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. God dwells in our soul he dwells with us and in us. But in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul is not referring to individual Christians. The word temple in 3.16 is singular, but the word you there is plural. It is as the community of believers that God dwells with the people in Corinth as well as with them individually. Together, they are God's temple. The context helps us to be certain in this instance that Paul is not writing about individuals being the temple of God, that he's talking about the church. In what immediately precedes these two verses, I've already mentioned them, 
In 3.9, Paul's imagery is that of the community of believers. Paul wrote there, you, plural, meaning the whole church, are God's field. You, plural, the whole church, are God's building. Context is very important, of course, when we're studying Scripture. Paul tells the Christians at Ephesus that God inhabits their local assembly. He tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, in Christ the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. God dwells with the believers assembled in these congregations at Corinth and Ephesus. But he dwells here with us. We, gathered in this worship service, should understand that the Holy Spirit of God is present with us. And he always is when we gather in his name. But he's with us when we gather in other places to serve him, to do what Christ has called us to do. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. The great expositor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, read anything you can by Dr. Jones, wrote this, God is within us, speaking of the church. He abides in us. The final, ultimate mystery and glory of the church is that God dwells within her. He dwells in his church amongst his people. There is nothing in the realm of thought that can advance beyond that. Paul is saying to these people at Corinth, and possibly to you and me this morning, remember how important the local church is to God. If it has been uh, become ordinary to you, go back and think what it is to God. Think about the mystery and the glory of it if the mystery and glory have been lost on you. Your assembly is not like any other organization in the city. When you gather, God is present where you are in a way that he is not when you are not gathered. Your assembly is the only place where pagans can really go and meet with the one true God. You as a body are the Lord's witness in Corinth, Paul says to these people and to us here in Wilmington. Collectively, you are the pillar and ground of truth, the foundation of truth. It is through this organism of which each of you is a part that people normally come to faith in Jesus Christ and grow in the faith and are conformed to the image of God's Son and serve and love each other and serve and love the city. You help restrain the wickedness in your city, and you alone work to redeem it for me, God says. My guess is that nearly all of us need to recapture the vision of what this church here is, and any Christ-centered local church in our city is. We come, we meet, we go through the worship activities, we give, we serve, but do we realize regularly that we in this room and the ones who usually join with us who are not here today, when we are gathered, are the habitation of God's Spirit 
do we realize that the spirit of holiness, the spirit of Christ, the third person of the blessed Trinity is filling this space now and that he fills it whenever and wherever we meet. Do we see Faith Presbyterian Church and the other churches that are Christ-centered, gospel preaching in our city to be God's alternative to Satan in Wilmington and southeastern Pennsylvania? My suspicion is that you and I habitually forget the uniqueness, the importance, the value of Faith Presbyterian Church to Almighty God. This great thing that God began in 1936 becomes common to us. And the ultimate mystery and glory of the church, that God dwells amongst our people in us, is lost on us, I would think, most of the time. It is for me. I come. I go through the motions. If this is true for you, recapture the vision of the nature and the significance of the local church and keep these before you always Lastly, the consequences that run with working to destroy a local church. In 317, we have one of the severest warnings in all of Scripture for those who would ignore the nature and significance of the local church and who would work to destroy it by doing things that lead to the disruption of its unity. Listen to these words. If anyone destroys God's temple, these are the words of God through Paul, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, the word destroy that's used here uh, is not a real specific word. It means to mar, to bring to a worse state. And it means that anybody who really does anything to disrupt the unity, you don't have to be the ringleader. You don't have to be the head of the divisive element in the, in the church. person doesn't have to be that key instrument. But anyone who is involved opens themselves up to be a recipient of the retributive justice of God. All one needs to do is engage in activities that work to damage the unity of the body. Likewise, the word destroy does not denote the nature of the punishment that God will mete out. It simply makes it absolutely clear that one who damages the church opens himself, herself up to severe penalties. Now, the sin that drives God, the Holy Spirit, to write these words doesn't appear to us at first blush uh, to be a sin worthy of such sin, uh, severe sanction, does it? I mean, when you study chapter 3, the sin censured is simply the sin of doing things, of saying things that cause division in the body. It's the sin of dividing church members from each other and into parties over non-doctrinal issues. Doctrine is not apparently the issue here. The cause for the division at Corinth rested on some seemingly minor sins when you read it. There was some jealousy, the text says in chapter 3, some quarreling, and some pride in being a member of a group where the individuals in the group or in the various groups believed that if everyone in the church shared their group's view of the way the church should be, the church would be a much better place. God whose temple the local church is, 
viewed such behavior as behavior that works to destroy the building that he is building. And because the church is of incalculable value to him, because it is irreplaceable in his plan of redemption for the world, he does not let those who damage it go unpunished. In God's eyes, it is no small sin to sow division in a church or to aid and abet division in a local church. Now, look, God is long-suffering, and aren't you glad he is? I, I surely am. His judgment is often delayed, not immediately attending the sin when we commit it. Second Peter 3, 9, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When we confess our sins and turn from them, we know that God is faithful and just, and that he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. God is impunitive in his treatment of believers. His desire is to keep us from sin by warnings like this and to bring us back to the path of righteousness when we do sin. But Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord does not leave the guilty go unpunished. And sowing seeds of division and not confessing them and turning from them is serious business. Now, Calvin wrote, God has consecrated us as his temple. At the same time, he has pointed us keepers of the temple. We are the temple. We are to keep God's temple. One of the ways we keep God's temple is by doing and saying things that promote unity. Uh, another way is by refraining from doing and saying things that could possibly disrupt the unity of a church. Now, I've done this church. I've done church for a long time. And I know that our words and actions in the believing community can have impact far beyond what we ever imagined when we act or we spoke. They can unleash forces that can threaten God's own temple in ways that we never could foresee or never intended or imagined. When our words and actions promote unity, Paul says in Ephesians 3.1, that we are living a life worthy of the calling we have received. Now, when you look at the context, you know that the calling that God has given to every one of us as Christians is to work to maintain unity in the church. That's one of our callings. In context there, that's what it is. In Ephesians 3.3, Paul commands us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. When God draws someone savingly to his son by his Holy Spirit, you can picture him taking stones out of the world and fitting those stones into his temple, into the building that he is building. When a person believes, God, in effect, is doing that. He creates a unity from the, with the new Christian with all the Christians who have been in the church of Jesus. The responsibility, Ephesians tells us, of the new Christian and the old Christians is to maintain that unity that God creates when he gives new birth to a congregation, when he brings a new believer into that congregation. The congregation is to maintain the unity among themselves. When a church is divided, 
And the division is not because there's false doctrine that's being taught. The division nearly always comes because church members are failing to realize the nature and the significance of the church. They are forgetting that they are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in them as a community of believers. They are viewing the church like other organizations of which they are a part, where unity can be helpful, but it's not absolutely, in every case, essential. But when pastors and elders and deacons and key leaders and church members see the church as the temple of the living God, when they see it as the place where God is present, presenting the great drama of redemption in which he is showing to the community how those who have rebelled against God are being brought back into fellowship with him and with each other, when they do nothing to mar God's dwelling place in the world, they become instead agents of unity. Let our prayers regularly be that we will be like that, that we will walk worthy of our calling and be those kinds of agents. You know, the eternal souls, the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women, boys and girls, are at stake in the unity of the local church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be present in your house this morning and to think about these things. Father, I doubt that any one of us could honestly say before you that we are perfectly clean here, and so we are grateful that we have a Savior who makes us clean. We pray that if there are those present this morning who have never received Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they would even now repent of their sins and tell him that they want him, Christ, to come into their lives, to take away their sins and to give them life eternal and make them part of a local congregation of believers and that larger church. And I pray, Father, for those who are here who are believers, that you would help us to remember what we have in the local church. Help us to see faith not just as a building and some people who gather to worship. Help us to see it as a temple in this community. Help us to understand that when we come together that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is present with us, that we are the temple of the living God. And help us, Father, to treat the church as such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.